You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, early access to content, and a bunch of stuff. Again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. All the money that I make on there uh, goes to pay the fees to keep the podcast running and gives me a nice boost of confidence um, that that people approve of what I do here. <laughs> um, uh, so it's uh, much appreciated and everything. So again, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I'm currently very deep into a uh, um, review episode by episode review series on Patreon of the sci-fi, the German sci-fi series Dark on Netflix. And when this is coming out, so this episode is coming out on the 20th, um, next Monday, I'm starting my episode by episode review series of Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind, which I'm loving. So, uh, go ahead and join if you'd like at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer to get access to those, uh, Patreon exclusive, um, reviews. So <clears throat> today on the show, I'm going to be discussing Person or Persons Unknown. It is the 27th episode of the Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on March 23rd, 1962. And of course, I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 34, The Long Day. But before I get into all of that, I do want to share a couple of anecdotes from the world of fiction and science, and that's my segment of me talking about the things that I've watched or read or consumed in one form or another in the world of fiction and science, to borrow Truman Bradley's uh, turn of phrase in the outros um, for science fiction theater. So, really only got a couple of things here. Uh, One is Dark, uh, season two, episode one. I watched it, and yep, that show is still amazing. Um, (laughs) I am just so enamored with that show. Very excited to dig in further to it. Um, just, just so awesome. It's, it's so awesome. Um, and check out my reviews on patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And then I had another thing, but I completely forgot what it was. Um, I didn't write it down. Oh, that's such a shame. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll come to me. So, uh, that's really all I've got from the world of fiction and science. So, um, yeah, I'll be back with more stuff in the next episode, but, um, let me go ahead and share my, what I initially thought about, or what I, what I thought that person or persons unknown was going to be before I get into my review proper. Now, of course, I'm going to be spoiling the entirety of, um, persons or persons unknown, So fair warning, um, spoilers on for Person or Persons Unknown. 
And uh, what I knew before going into this episode was pretty much absolutely nothing. Um, I just kind of assumed from the title of the episode that it might have had something to do with aliens um, or maybe a missing person, Um, maybe someone with amnesia, um, or maybe it's alluding to just an alien race of some kind who visit Earth from an unknown place in space. Basically... All of that. had no idea. Um, <laughs> I had no clue. Um, and yeah, I didn't really think too hard about what it could possibly mean because this is an, this is an episode that doesn't really, hasn't really permeated pop culture for me and my viewpoint of pop culture. So I didn't really have much to run on in terms of, you know, pop culture phenomenon or po- pop culture like references to this episode. So that's what I thought it was pretty much off base across the board, except for maybe the amnesia thing, although that's technically not accurate either. (laughs) But anyway, um, let me get into my review of Person or Persons Unknown. And first, of course, I'm going to be spoiling it. I'm going to be reading the plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. So final warning for spoilers. Here we go. Plot summary courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. David Gurney wakes up one morning to find himself without an identity. His wife of 11 years doesn't recognize him. The employees at the bank where he works don't know him, and all forms of identity, including his driver's license, have vanished. After being picked up by the police for unruly conduct and theft of a vehicle, Gurney finds himself in an asylum where the doctor offers an explanation. Sometime last night, he suffered a disorientation and a severe case of mistaken identity. Determined to prove he is who he claims, Gurney sets out to find one of the small details that no one could possibly have known or covered up, thus proving the entire stunt was an elaborate practical joke. This attempt fails, and Gurney breaks down crying, only to wake from what appeared to be a nightmare. Now he has to cope with the loss of identity he swore to regain because he cannot recall who he is, and the woman who claims is his wife is unfamiliar to him. So this episode stars Richard Long as David Gurney. This is his first of two appearances on The Twilight Zone. The next we'll see from him is in Season 5's Number 12 Looks Just Like You. And he was he also has uh he also has a credit in 1966's Assault on a Queen, which was written by Rod Serling, but it's not an acting credit, interestingly enough. It's an assistant director credit, which I found kind of interesting. Um, and he also appeared in 1959's House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price. And uh I don't really have much else on him except that he passed away in 1974 from a heart attack. Um, co-starring as Dr. Kozlenko is Frank Silvera. This was his only appearance on The Twilight Zone, and I don't really have much else on him except that uh, one of his notable credits is that he appeared in Stanley Kubrick's Fear and Desire, which was a movie that Kubrick kind of disowned um, (laughs) uh, after the fact. I think he claimed it was like an amateurish uh, production. I'm not sure. But anyway... um, Frank Silvera was in Fear and Desire. And also, not to harp on the deaths of these of these people, but um, he passed away in June of 1970. And what had happened was he had accidentally electrocuted him, himself in the kitchen when he was trying to uh, repair a garbage disposal, which is really sad and, uh, and tragic. 
And then uh, co-starring as Wilma number one is Shirley Ballard. This was her only appearance on The Twilight Zone, and there's really not much on her IMDb, so I don't really have a lot um, of information on her, but um, she was in this episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, also appearing in this episode as Wilma number two at the end of the episode is Julie Von Zant. Uh, this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone, and she did appear in one episode of science fiction theater in 1956 called The Human Experiment. And the only other thing I found about her that I found pretty interesting is that she was married to Richard L. Bear from 1951 to 1957. They had two children together, and Richard Bear, of course, is the director of seven Twilight Zone episodes, um, including Third from the Sun, Nick of Time, and the recently reviewed, on my part, To Serve Man and The Fugitive, even. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, and then rounding out the cast is Harry Swoger as Sam Baker, the bartender. This was his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. He previously um, appeared in Dead Man's Shoes, in which he also played a character named Sam, which is kind of interesting. And then writer for this episode was Charles Beaumont. This is his 13th Twilight Zone out of 22. And he previously wrote The Fugitive, and next we'll see from him is uh, the season four premiere in his image. And then rounding out the talent rundown is director John Brom. This is his eighth Twilight Zone out of 12. Previously, we saw his work in, sh in, in the incredible shadow play. And next we'll see from him is in Young Man's Fancy later this, uh, later this season. And before we get into my actual review, I... <laughs> <laughs> I just suddenly remembered the uh, segment from the world of fiction and science that I was going to bring up. I can't believe I didn't think about this, or I, I can't believe that this kind of went away from my mind. But before I get into my review, I want to mention that on Twitter at OV Anthology Pod, I so this is what happened. When I was working from home, um, I have a flexible kind of hybrid schedule where I work from home in my day job uh, two or three days out of the week and then work in the office on the remaining days. So when I was working from home this week, just a couple of days ago, I realized, you know, what would be fun is if I, for no, for no real reason, um, if I just watched The Twilight Zone all day. And if I just watched watched it in a random order, having my own my own um, my own private Twilight Zone marathon, so I did that and I tweeted about it. I did a whole Twitter thread on it, so check out OV Anthology Pod on Twitter, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that thread in here if I remember. So anyway, that's the other thing that I was going to mention. So okay, <clears throat> let's get into my review of person or persons unknown. And before we get into the actual episode proper, the opening theme music plays, and I think it's it's very, it's it's slightly altered, the music is, and I'm not sure exactly what the deal is with that, but it's a, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a more, a, a darker tone, I guess, or a little more, it's, it's strange, that's, that's the best I can, the best I can use to describe it. Um, and I, I kind of, when I, when I noticed that I realized, and I don't know if this is a one-off thing or if it's the remainder of the season, time will tell. But, um, when I saw this, I just thought like, you know, 
we're kind of due for a change up in the in the opening theme anyway because i know that every season kind of has a different opening theme uh opening theme segment and everything um or at least visually and in the narration as well um but each season kind of has a little bit of a change up like that there was that weird like floating eye thing in season one and i think there was something in season two that was different but anyway um just a weird observation so we open on a couple lying in bed clearly after a wild night of partying and drinking probably and it's very clear from um from uh oh god I can't, uh, from David's um demeanor that he is very hungover and we see that this is something i found interesting that it's Wilma and David obviously Wilma has this headband wrapped around her head, which I'm sure is a fashion, a fashion from the sixties or is something, something, uh, cosmetologically, um, <laughs> that makes sense and everything. But I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of unique. That's unique. But then I didn't realize until repeat viewings that it's like, oh, okay. It's seeding the idea that, you know, she's going to have like this stuff wrapped around her head and everything. So that when she goes to the bathroom at the end, that'll be a better, uh, that'll be a better way to reveal that she's a different person. Um, so I thought, I thought that that was, uh, I thought that that was good foreshadowing for the ending, even if the ending, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, even if the ending isn't necessarily strong itself, um, which I'll go ahead and say this episode is fine. It's, it's fine. It's nothing to really write home about. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of talk through my feelings as I go through the review, but just want to let you know, this is kind of a middle of the road episode for me. So, uh, David looks at the clock and we see this, this very nice touch of the, uh, camera, uh, the, um, I don't know, the, the focus is blurry. So we said that's communicating to us, of course, that he is, uh, hung over. And then he rolls around and there's like a strip of paper on him. And I don't know if that is like supposed to be like a, just a piece of telegraph or if that is actually like ticker tape from like a ticker tape parade or something. I don't know, but, uh, some kind of party stream, uh, streamer decoration, I'm sure. But anyway, it's a nice detail to kind of show this slight dishevelment of, of it and kind of convey this hectic night, before with minimal like props and minimal set decoration. So I think that was uh, a nice little detail. So as he is getting out of bed, he tells the, he tells Wilma that she can continue sleeping. You know, he's very sarcastic. He's extremely sarcastic. And that's both to his benefit in the episode and to his detriment in terms of my viewing of him, which I'll get to in a bit. But anyway, uh, he talks about how he's an hour late for work, but of course you can go ahead and sleep in as long as you want and everything. Um, and he says like, yeah, we just had to stay out. We had to stay out and, uh, we had to go to the party. Uh, but, oh no, I wanted to stay home and read a book, but PD would have been upset. And, uh, PD is in reference to the person that they went to the party for, like, I guess the subject of the party that they were at before. Um, and then it's later revealed that PD is like his, is David's like best friend. Um, and they went to school together and everything, but ultimately the party the night before and PD as a person ultimately are completely irrelevant to the plot. <laughs> um, like 100% irrelevant. 
So anyway, um, he uh, he comes out. He's looking for his razor, and he gets kind of agitated. And he's like, "All right, well, where did you? What did you do with my razor, Wilma? Wilma, you've got to wake up. You've got to wake up. Where's my razor? I'm late for work and all that." And so she wakes up and she looks at him, and then she gets under the covers and hides, and then screams bloody murder when he, you know, is like uh, taking the covers off of her and and trying to get her attention. And so this is the this is the moment where we realize what is amiss in this episode. Uh, it's that she doesn't remember him. And I thought in this moment, okay, this is kind of interesting. Um, and then immediately after that, I thought, I don't really know, I don't really know about the acting in this episode. Um, I felt like Richard Long was okay, and I eventually warmed up to him quite a bit, in fact. But in this moment, in this introductory scene, in this intro- in these introductory moments with him, I feel like he was a little bit too animated, and it took me out of it just a little bit. And on the other hand, I feel like Shirley Ballard was just a little bit over the top, and it's it was too too chaotic of a scene for us to catch up with what was going on because it's also the introduction of the main conceit of the entire episode so with these performances being a little heightened and a little bit not really on the same on the same wavelength it kind of creates this vacuum of uh, or this void in the scene where it should be occupying our mind with keeping our attention but i don't know maybe that's just me But this opening scene, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that Wilma's perspective of it is absolutely terrifying. And I think that that's due to the way that Richard Long plays that scene and his performance in that scene and throughout most of this episode, in fact, it goes such a long way toward making that idea of what Wilma is going through in this scene a little more disturbing because he's got this kind of cheekiness to the role that he's that he's portraying um, because he thinks that it's a practical joke that people in his life are playing on him and he's masking his annoyance, his frustration, his agitation with this slightly good-natured charm and dripping with sarcasm and everything. And I think that that's a really interesting balance to strike for an episode where the conceit is going to get us to the thought or is going to put us in the thought that, okay, this character is going to be incredibly agitated throughout the entire episode, but that's not really the case. Um, But that whole like cheeky kind of sarcastic, but sort of good-natured but hiding annoyance um attitude that that um uh that Richard Long brings to the role that whole tone from Wilma's perspective as a woman who has just discovered this complete stranger in her bedroom like the way that he's acting and her perspective of the way he's acting is absolutely horrifying and I would love to have seen it explored from her perspective um in in maybe a full episode i don't know but anyway uh following this we get uh we get the opening narration from rod serling which i will go ahead and play right now you get out of here wilma wilma how do you know my name it's on the marriage certificate remember oh mister i've never seen you before in all my life cameo of a man who has just lost his most valuable possession 
He doesn't know about the loss yet. In fact, he doesn't even know about the possession. Because like most people, David Gurney has never really thought about the matter of his identity. But he's going to be thinking a great deal about it from now on. Because that is what he's lost. And his search for it is going to take him into the darkest corners of the Twilight Zone. So my initial reaction to this whole opening scene is that I feel I feel like it's an intriguing opening to an episode. And the way that the opening narration alludes to this episode being about a loss of identity definitely had me intrigued going into it. And my main question when when I kind of came back from the opening narration was is David Gurney a good person or bad person? Because I was under the impression or I was of the thought that David Gurney was going to learn some type of lesson in this episode. Unfortunately, it's really not that type of episode. And I think that that's why it's kind of a middle of the road episode for me. Um, maybe even bottom half episode. Um, because there isn't anything to really tie me to the character. Um, aside from his performance, which I, I said up front, he was a little too animated, but then I warmed up to him. So it's not even like it's a, it's an out of this world, amazing performance by any stretch. It's something that took time for me to warm up to. So, so I don't know. So, uh, Wilma is telling him to get out of her house and, uh, David just thinks that he, she's playing some kind of, uh, uh, prank and the energy of that exasperation, this is where I'm starting to warm up to him. And I feel, I feel like that energy is pretty solid. And so he wanders around. He's like, okay, I'm going to change. And then he looks in the, in the drawers and he sees, oh, my clothes are gone. What did you do with my clothes? And at that moment, I just real like I had realized when watching it, you know, the second time, I think um, I had realized at that moment that I didn't I hadn't put it together that the reason he couldn't find his razor is because he doesn't exist. And, th- and that razor has no business being there. Like I didn't I didn't even put that together until later. And I just thought that that was a, a pretty nice detail. Um, and at this point, I'm kind of wondering, like, OK, so he basically stumbled into an alternate universe where he doesn't exist. Uh, that's not really what the episode is going through or going for. Um, but it's something that can kind of be explained a little bit in that manner. Um, but again, before we get away from, from David leaving and going to work, I just want to say again, at this point, I, I could not stop thinking about this whole scene from Wilma's perspective. And I think that it would make and I'm sure that this exact thing has happened before in terms of fiction, but um, this would make for a really interesting horror story, again, because it all rests on the energy of David reacting to the situation as if he's aware of a prank and the way that that plays for everyone around him who are just confused as all hell about his behavior. And just, like, for, for example, the way that he he kind of, he starts to leave and then he comes back and he's, he says in that very sarcastic, very uh, like deceptively cheerful tone, he thanks her for offering him breakfast, um, but he must be going or whatever. Like that's really good banter, but also it's easy, it's so easy that from, it's so easy from Wilma's perspective to make him look absolutely unhinged. And so I just found that to be kind of fascinating in a, in a sense. So 
Following that scene, David arrives at work. He works in a bank. He's, you know, he's a, he's a bank man, I guess. Push, push, push. Um, that was advertising, but whatever. Anyway, um, and I kind of had this not overwhelming thought, but I just had this thought when he was driving to work that I'm I'm glad that this episode is branching out toward being more all-encompassing instead of just contained to a single character's single location and his single kind of experience. Instead, we're getting in a more open world of the Twilight Zone in a way, um, because he's interacting with multiple people and multiple facets of his life and everything. Um, and this is this is kind of refreshing in a way because I feel like we haven't really seen that in in a little while. Um, I suppose we get a little bit of that into Serve Man a few weeks ago, but. Really, it's we don't have like a big, like multiple set um, scene or multiple set um, story with a with a main character. We haven't had that in a little while. So as he goes into the bank, he greets the guard, but the guard kind of pays him no mind. He greets him by name and the guard pays him no mind. And then he goes up to, I think, like his boss and he, the the boss kind of looks confused a little bit. And David asks, who's the man at my desk? And he says, that's Mr. Cooper. So he goes over to Mr. Cooper and David, while still thinking that he's, that he's the victim, the victim of some practical joke, he kind of tells Mr. Cooper off in a very polite, like workplace way. <laughs> um, and there's this like slight smile that Richard Long gives to that uh, performance in this kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of, it's unexpected and weirdly pleasant because he's almost like laughing. He's almost cheerful at this. And it's such a subversion of our expectations because we think that, like I thought going in this, that like, you know, with this type of episode, it, it should, he should be more agitated and more confused and more short tempered about all of it but he doesn't even entertain the fact that he's in a Twilight Zone type of situation until much later. And I think that that's really interesting. And and I think that that really brings out this almost cheerfulness to his performance in, in the face of a very wildly crazy situation that he finds himself in. And so... Mr. Cooper is like, okay, yeah, like what the hell? I'm going to call security. So he calls security over and there's this kind of power struggle between David and the security guard that leads to David kind of shoving him and then the guard pulling out his gun and telling him to put his hands up and then he's going to go outside. And I found that to be really interesting. And this is me mining a little bit more depth than what is probably in the episode. I admit that fully. And I think that there's probably a little bit of millennial just thought processes processes here. But I feel like that's a pretty interesting scene. And it's an interesting angle to explore because David, in his interaction with the security guard, he later says that he's worked with him for four years, I think. And... In that interaction, it just seems like he has this sense of privilege or power over the security guard in a sense. Like, it's born from his familiarity with the security guard and his realization or his thought 
that, you know, I'm, I'm an upstanding businessman in this building and I have no reason to have any excuse to cross security guards or anything. So much so that he probably thinks that he is, you know, above reproach. So if he does something that's out of, out of hand or that seems irrational or anything and then gets called out on it by a security guard, he doesn't, he I feel like he doesn't know how to separate um, the the position of the security guard with the familiarity of the person that he knows with that. And I think that that's kind of a sort of interesting angle to explore, like I said, because it even comes down to uh, to David threatening the man's job, saying that, you know, we've, you know, this is all well and good and everything, but, you know, I don't want to have to get you fired or whatever, which seems like such a privileged kind of thing. And I, I speak to that from semi-experience working in an office building and having worked as a security guard in the same office building. <laughs> so, like, I know how the perception of things are in terms of in a, in a business setting with security guards on site and everything. Um, and there are some people that just have zero respect for any of the security protocols or whatever. Like, yeah, you should let this person in. No, they have to sign in. That's the rules or you can't park over here. You have to park over there. Well, why can't I? Well, because it's the rules, like it's the rules. That's yeah. Anyway. So, um, I just had flashbacks to when I was a security guard. Um, But anyway, um, I just think it's an interesting angle to explore. This is my third time saying that, um, because something is, something weird is happening to David or around David that he's not fully aware of yet. And I think it's because he just doesn't, he isn't grasping it. He is, he doesn't want to grasp the fact that he is in this weird situation, um, but when the dynamic between him and the security guard shifts, David just doesn't take him seriously. And because, and I, I'm kind of inferring from that, uh, that it's because David thinks of himself as more important than others. And I don't know, that could be me grasping at straws because this episode really doesn't have a very clear message for the character. Um, so I'm not saying that this is the intent or anything, but that idea of him, him thinking that he, the self-importance of David Gurney, um, free band name, I guess. Um, like the self-importance of David Gurney, um, would have been a good message or a good theme to explore a little bit deeper in the episode, but they don't, the, the show doesn't really, uh, go that deep with that or anything. And so as the security guard is telling David to leave the premises and go outside, all I think is like, okay, now this is where things are going to get interesting and it's going to get serious for David because now he has stumbled into a potentially a potential law-breaking situation. And so, yeah, so I was kind of eager to see um, what happened. And at this point, I also thought this whole thing is a bit reminiscent of a world of difference from season one, because both of them have a similar kind of crisis of identity storylines. I will say that I think a world of difference handles that a much better, um, and a little, and, and very much less open-ended and everything, but this is a respectable middle of the road twilight zone in its own right. So David is taken outside where Wilma is waiting there with police to identify him 
um, and a crowd of bankers form around him outside. And so Wilma, like, like, I think a police officer says, is that him? And Wilma's like, yep, that's him. And, uh, the guard comes, comes back and is like, what is your name to David? And then David still kind of still wanting to call the bluffs of the, of the prank. Basically he looks at Wilma and says, she'll, she'll tell you what's my name. And she doesn't know. So he says, it's David Gurney. He's now finally getting very exasperated. Everyone around him looks puzzled. And he says, here, I'm going to prove it. Here's my wallet. And it's empty. Um, and then the scene ends with the police taking him away in in the police car. And then we get an act break. So we come back from the commercial. And um, at this point, I kind of... I don't know. I'm kind of back and forth. I'm I'm kind of really liking the way that this episode is depicting David Gurney because despite the fact that we really don't know much of anything about him through his interactions with with the people that he comes into contact with, we we kind of can tell some certain things about him. So through the interactions he has with people he knew before what I'm calling the erasure, um, we can kind of glean from that that he thinks that he's a man of importance, and maybe he was a man of importance, but now he's literally nobody because nobody knows um, who he is or or anything. Like he has no status in the world that he you know um, lived in until like last night. So that that kind of speaks to the loss of identity that's alluded to in Serling's narration. And I feel like that kind of concept is coming through pretty well. And it's kind of like the show is telling us that no matter who David Gurney thinks he is or thinks he's supposed to be, he's really nothing but routine and status at work. And that kind of leads to the question and kind of a philosophically leaning question. Like who is David Gurney if he's not a married man with an important job in a big building, but it's not even about status per se, because I'll, I'll kind of stop short of making that kind of connection. But what I feel like is that it's potentially about the, de- the tendency for people to think that an amalgam of different things amounts to a full life. So like, like I said, the married man with an important job in a big building, um, that those things make him think that he like, that's his identity as opposed to actively living a full life, um, which would be a more satisfying experience in with those important things to be, to be fair to those important elements being, you know, the rest of his life. <laughs> um, I don't know. But the episode doesn't really, doesn't really, um, doesn't really make that too much of a focal point in the episode, which is kind of a shame. And that's, it's why I didn't connect to the episode quite as much as I, I would have liked to. But anyway, we come back from the commercial, like I said, like an hour ago, um, but David is in the hospital and he's still in hysterics. He's still hysterical. And the doctor tells him that there's no need for excitement. And then he goes on to say, if we're to help you, mister, you've got to face facts. You see this man you think you are, he doesn't really exist except in your mind. So <clears throat> my first viewing of this, I was really intrigued by that. And 
I kind of thought that maybe David Gurney was going to be revealed to be an actual figment of this man's imagination. And uh, at that point, I was kind of curious, like, how that was going to play out. But then it very much just kind of came screaming at me like, okay, I don't know how that would actually fit into the episode at that point. Like, I think that there would be a lot of heavy lifting and everything. Um, but I, I kind of like that idea of, you know, everyone telling him that not only is he not the person that he thinks he is, but the person he thinks he is does not exist. I think that that's an interesting, an interesting element to the, to the episode. And so, the doctor says that he's going to need more proof, obviously, that that David seems like he's going to need more proof. And so he kind of guides him into the next room, but not before he introduces him to uh, the fellow patient in the hospital. Uh, he introduces him as William, or uh, not William, but Winston Churchill. And then he says, or so he thinks. And usually I save trivia for the end, but very interesting that <laughs> that, that was uh, John Bear. Um, uh, is that, is that, no, not John Bear. Jesus, I just messed up his name. Uh, the director of the, uh, episode, which his name is John Brom. Sorry, uh, John Brom. Uh, that is his only acting role <laughs> on IMDb, but it's a director cameo. And I was just really delighted when I saw that in the credits. Um, I was just, I, like, I was just very tickled by that. So anyway, <clears throat> They go into the next room, and uh, David has the doctor dial Pete's number. And Pete, it was referenced earlier, it's the party that he went to, um, and he tells the doctor that they're best friends and everything, and that they went to school together. So David picks up the phone and talks to Pete, and we don't hear anything on the other end. We don't hear the other side of the conversation, which I think is... Interesting. I don't know necessarily if there is an artistic reason for that in this scene, because that same thing happens when he calls his mother, because we do not hear the other side of the conversation in either of those cases. We can obviously, you know, infer what is said and everything. We don't need it. But I think that that's just an interesting element to it that they didn't they didn't have that on the soundtrack, basically. Um, but basically the bottom line is that Pete doesn't remember him. So they hang up the phone and the doctor asks if he wants to call anyone else. And so he says, yeah, call KL five, blah, 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 which just the, the whole like extensions and everything like back in the day. I just, I like that type of, I don't know, old, old, old fashioned technology, I guess. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of neat anyway. <clears throat> so David gives the doctor another number. And he tells the, the doctor to ask for Mrs. Gurney. And she answers. David takes the phone. And it's his mother. So uh, he says, like, hey, mom, thank God. You know, I'm so I'm so relieved and everything. It's Dave, your son. Like, it's your it's your son, Dave. And then that's kind of where it kind of breaks. His, his mind kind of breaks just a little bit there. Um, and all, like, that kind of got my mind racing a little bit, too. Because presumably she doesn't know him and presumably she just doesn't even have a son in this universe and everything. So, because we don't know exactly what, um, what was said or anything, we can kind of just infer from that. But 
then like my mind was kind of spinning around because I, all I thought was like, okay, well, okay. So if he doesn't exist in this, in this universe, or if everything is gone and then everyone's trying to convince him that everything is a figment of his imagination, how did he know her number? How did he know how to reach her? How did he know how to reach Pete? How does he know this information? And I kind of feel like that's, that's so like, it makes it, it makes it a little bit more intriguing because it's not necessarily that David stumbled into a different reality where he doesn't exist. It's that the world around him erased him. So his mother still has the same number and the bartender has the same history and everything, but he just does not exist. And I find that interesting. And I feel like that's kind of a, it's a little bit of a dropped idea also because um, because I feel like the doctor, I feel like the doctor could have had a bigger role in terms of like asking those questions that I asked, like, how did he know the number? Where did he get this information? How does he know all of this information? But, you know, that's, that's kind of probably just nitpicking and everything. But to circle back to the whole phone call, uh, scenes and everything, I do think it's interesting, like I said, that we don't hear the other sides of David's phone calls. And if, if it wasn't, I I think I would have been much more interested in that as an element of the scene if it wasn't for the doctor speaking to Mrs. Gurney when he made the call. Because I would if if we didn't have that line where he is talking to Mrs. Gurney on the phone and then and then Dave takes the phone, if Dave was the only one to interact with with Mrs. Gurney on the phone, I would have commended it as a nice bit of ambiguity thrown in where we could imagine that David is imagining the conversations because we're not hearing the other side of it. Um, and maybe that could still work to some extent in our minds when we watch it, but I think it's kind of spoiled a little bit by the doctor speaking to Mrs. Gurney, but also the fact that the doctor connects the call and talks to Mrs. Gurney and addresses her as such and everything, um, also says that the show wasn't interested in misleading us or, or giving us that, that like bit of ambiguity or anything. So what have you or whatever, but, uh, but then the doctor, uh, is like, okay, well let's confirm your identity. You said that you're David Gurney, you live at this address. And then he's like, you know, if that's true, then you would be listed in the phone book. And he looks and he's not listed. And then, and then David says something that I think he repeats in a little bit, but he says, if I'm not David Gurney, then who am I? And that, that alone like carries a little bit of weight behind it. And it makes it feel a little bit profound in a, in a weird way. And I'm just, every time I watch this episode, I'm just thinking, I wish that it was that, that concept was explored so much more. I wish that that was something that the, that the show really ran with, with the remainder of the episode, but it's not. And that's kind of a shame. But on the other hand, that this whole sequence where David is trying to, uh, seek is trying to get the proof that he's David Gurney is really solid because at every turn he's let down. Um, but it still raises the question as to how he knows the numbers and the names of people and their histories and everything. Um, so yeah, so then again, if I'm not David Gurney, then who am I? Um, in addition to the fact that I wish that that was explored more as a concept, 
I feel like the doctor should, like I said, should have more questions given the information that he has been privy to in this whole scene, basically. Um, I think that maybe with a longer runtime or with uh, like re rejuggling the the scenes and everything, I think it would have worked a little bit better if the doctor had a partner and th- that partner and him could confer about how David can know these things. And it would give a second or third hand rationale for what the doctor can explain. Like if the doctor were to say, or if his assistant or his partner or whatever were to say, well, okay, how did David know how to call? Like, how did David know Mrs. Gurney's phone number if he's not David Gurney? Um, then it could just be, well, you know, he probably researched it. It's all a ruse. Like he's, he has tricked himself into thinking that it's real, but he is prepared for it and everything. So I don't know, there could have been some heavy lifting done a little bit to logic out the reasons to thereby make us as the audience feel a little bit less secure about what's going on (laughs) because we could be curious. We could, we could be second guessing ourselves, by thinking like, well, maybe he is actually mentally disturbed. Maybe, maybe he is, maybe he is really like fabricating this existence and he's not really in the twilight zone. I don't know. But the way that the story plays out, there's no way to justify that. There's no way to bring that into, into the, uh, the realm of possibility in the last act of the episode. So anyway, David then asks the doctor, if he's really crazy, he's, he's like, am I really that crazy? And so the doctor says, no, you're mentally disturbed. Um, what you've had is like some momentary block or whatever. And so David kind of casts him aside and he's like, no, 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 I know who I am. Someone doesn't go 35 years and then suddenly not know who they are. That's just not something. And he says that maybe someone's trying to block me out. Um, and the doctor's like, who would do that? And he's like, I don't know. And it's just like that back and forth, like I kind of, I kind of wish that there was a little bit more there. Um, but then David kind of has this little like eureka moment and he's like, a man's life is made up of millions of details. Some are, some are private. So I'm going to, (laughs) uh, he's like, I'm going to go find one of those private, you know, details that no one else knows. So, so that I can prove that I'm not crazy and everything. Um, so he's going to prove that he is who he thinks he is. And then the very next frame of the scene, like it jumps to him running to the window and jumping out of the window, crashing through the window, jumping out and then running down the street. And this was so jarring to me. This was so jarring. And to be completely honest, it was a little goofy for my taste. It was a little too goofy for my tastes. Um, I get it. It's showing the sense of urgency that he has and how he doesn't want to be institutionalized, obviously, and this is his only recourse. But that sudden switch to that extreme just doesn't work for me in the context of the finished the finished episode, because up until that point, David has been sort of thinking logically about most everything up to this point. And like, I really just wish that there was a beat or two before David leapt through the window, because that would have conveyed that it was his only option, that the, that he was mentally trying to figure out, like, what do I do next? Oh, there's a window, I'm going to jump through it. But since there is no lag time between the lack, of the, between the end of his 
um, phrase and him jumping out the window, it just really takes me out of the scene and takes me out of the show a little bit. And I have no idea what the case was here, but I'm very, very curious if this was scripted that way, if it was an immediate thing and shot and, and filmed that exact way, or if that leap was edited down so that if there was like a beat or anything, if they cut extraordinarily close to get to that uh, jumping out the window scene, I wonder if they did that, they edited it to truncate it so that it could, that the show would fit the time slot and everything. I don't know. That is a small theory that I have about that. But anyway, um, I have nothing to back it up or anything. So, um, it was such a bizarre turn and it looks goofy every single time I watch it. And then from there, he is running around the street trying to steal a car and At this point, I think because I'm not as connected with David Gurney as I would like to be as a protagonist, and I'm kind I'm enjoying the ride. I'm enjoying the storyline so far, but I'm just not connecting with the character. And because of that, I feel like at this moment when he's trying to steal a car, all I'm thinking is this episode has taken such a strange turn and I'm just not that into it right now. Um, And then we cut to the bar and he walks up to the bar and sits down. He orders his usual, but the bartender doesn't know. And so he clarifies, he says, I'd like an Irish whiskey. And then he starts asking the bartender questions. He says, who am I? Like, who who am I? And the bartender's like, well, how many guesses do I get? Um, So at this point, still, like it comes back to David still thinking that someone is out there pulling the strings. He has like this aside where he's like, well, they got to see him too or whatever. And he mentions like, yeah, well, who comes here every Friday, um, every Friday evening uh, for the last three years? And the bartender's just like, my wife? Um, And he's like, but who else? And that alone is just kind of weird to me. Like this guy kept this place a secret for three years, every Friday night. And I don't understand that. I I don't, I don't understand. I think that that's weird. I, I don't know. But anyway, so David asks the bartender, Sam, uh, what he would do if suddenly everyone forgot who he was. And Sam has this very nice, uh, like I'd tell him to switch brands, uh, line, but David, uh, starts to explain everything that he knows about Sam um, well, first of all, he, I don't know. Yeah. This scene, this scene feels like it should have been a little bit, a little bit more expanded and everything. But anyway, he kind of comes to a realization and then he has this idea. So he pays the tab and tells Sam that he thinks he found the detail that they overlooked, even though he knows that Sam has no clue what he's talking about. And then he runs off. Um, so this brief scene is pretty okay, but I do like how the scene is basically that, cliched bartender listening to a customer's issues scene, but in the twilight zone, I kind of like that. That's, it plays into that cliche and that archetype of that bartender, uh, patron, uh, relationship on film. So the next scene we get, and again, I like how expansive this 
episode is because David is going to all of these different places and talking to all of these different people. So I do appreciate that. But the next stop is a photography studio to get a picture that was taken with Wilma before, uh, like, uh, like a week or two before and was being developed. So, uh, yeah, so they're talking like the, the photograph photography technician and, David are talking. It's not very interesting. It's just back and forth and everything and clarification about the number for the order and everything. It's kind of bland, to be honest. But she gets the picture out, shows it to David. He looks at it and it's David and Wilma. And so that's his big eureka moment. So he rushes to the door. She's yelling that he owes her money. And then when he opens the door, there's police and the doctor standing there. And uh, he's very triumphant. And he's about to show the picture to the doctor. And obviously we know that it's not going to solve the case or anything (laughs) because we only saw the picture from David's point of view. So he hands the photo over and it's just David alone. And then he falls to the ground, pounding his fist and saying that I was there, I was there or whatever he says. And then that's when we get him waking from a dream next to Wilma in bed. Uh, So it was all a nightmare and I like the slight reprieve. I like the, I like the little bit of like a reprieve that he gets in this moment, even though we know that it's not going to end well. Like I can tell very clearly that, that the twilight zone is going to deliver one final gut punch for David and then leave on a, on a dark note, basically. Uh, and the way that that plays out is that Wilma gets up, goes to the bathroom. She's talking to him saying that, Uh, I just need to get the stuff off my face and everything. And then we can, I think it's kind of implying that they're going to have sex, but I don't know. But Wilma gets up, she goes to the bathroom. And then when she comes out, uh, she looks different. She's a different person and (laughs) he doesn't recognize her. And it is like the nightmare starts all over again in a different way. Um, and the horror on his face, there's a very cool, like light that, uh, like natural light, I guess, or probably, stage lighting. I don't know. But anyway, there's a beam of light that's over his eye, his eyes. Um, and it's just, it's a cool, it's a cool, um, piece of cinematography there. Uh, a good piece of cinnamon, cinnamon, cinnabonography, um, (laughs) cinematography. Anyway. Um, so then we get Rod Serling's closing narration, which I will play right now. A case of mistaken identity or a nightmare turned inside out. A simple loss of memory or the end of the world. David Gurney may never find the answer, but you can be sure he's looking for it in the Twilight Zone. So, so I kind of like the idea of David being stuck in this perpetual nightmare. I don't know if this is implying that it's like a time loop thing, but for a nightmare, or if it's just that, okay, this is round two, and we'll see what happens or whatever. I I kind of like that. And I kind of like the complete lack of resolution. And I like the idea that, or I like the fact that this iteration of it, this version of it is different because now he doesn't recognize his wife. So I don't know if that's saying that she is going to then be the person that has the crisis of conscience or I'm sorry, the identity crisis and everything or if it's just going to be extension of his uh, his lack of identity and everything. I don't know. But it does create an even deeper loss of identity in his mind um, because he has experienced that 
that experience of being nobody, of, of being a nobody. And now he is experiencing like the deepest, richest relationship of his life being a stranger. And I find that to be really interesting. And I think that, I don't know, I think that that, that should have been explored a little bit more. That That is a story that can be explored a lot more. So um, it's just kind of an endless, uh, endless nightmare. And, uh, I kind of, I kind of like it, but it, like I said, at the start of this review, it's not my favorite ending. It's not a very, it's not a big ending. It's not an impactful ending. It's a fun surprise, but I think at the end of the day, I just don't care enough about David Gurney to have like an emotional connection with this ending. And I think that that's kind of where, why this episode is going to fall in the middle ground. Um, it's going to kind of probably fall in the bottom, bottom half of, uh, my personal like mental ranking of the, of the show. Um, but some closing thoughts are that a um in addition to a world of difference this episode is also a good companion to mirror image from season 1 um and i i know i kind of bring that up a lot the comparisons between the episodes but i i kind of sometimes like the way that the show revisits some of the thematic elements of the of episodes past i think that that's an interesting an interesting kind of thing to do um, in the show, but sometimes it does feel a little bit like a rehash, like with nothing in the dark, um, for instance. So I don't know, it's kind of a give and take kind of thing. So other closing thoughts, I wish this episode had explored the idea of finding out who someone really is a bit more. Um, it would have been interesting to see a true crisis of identity as David Gurney's whole world fall, falls apart and then he's forced to figure out who he actually is, I think that that would have been a much more engaging storyline than him just fighting against the the world not knowing him. And then finally, I also feel like we needed a little bit more detail about David Gurney as a person to really make the episode stand out more. Um, like, I really don't want to belabor that point, but there's no lesson learned by David through the course of the episode. And while not every episode needs that, it would have given more context to the character in this case, and it would have made his predic predicament a bit more thrilling, in my opinion. And I think that that's why it was just kind of a misstep um, at the end of the day. So uh, now for a bit of trivia about a uh, person or persons unknown. As I mentioned in the review, the man who played Winston Churchill is John Brom, the director of the episode, and that is his sole acting credit, I believe. Uh, next piece of trivia is uh, this episode features one of the first, ep first instances on television of a couple sharing a single bed, sleeping next to each other. Um, because at this time, you know, TV shows could really only show like twin beds and couples sleeping in separate beds due to just standards and practices on television and everything. Um, I think I talked about it in, in a, in a very, very early episode of, of anthology, but, um, but here we have two, two people sharing a single bed. And, um, according to trivia from IMDb, uh, let's see. So 
Um, quote, in season five, stop over in a quiet town, a very similar situation occurs. In both cases, the man is sleeping on top of the covers. He's still fully dressed, even wearing his shoes and they're hung over from a bout of heavy drinking the night before. So I think that even though they are a couple laying in the same bed, like the lengths that the show has to go through to get, uh, to get that, to get it not be not be catch the ire of the censors um is kind of interesting um and a scene or an element of or a moment of the episode that's uh apparently often uh mistaken for a for a anachronism or a mistake is that when dave gets uh the photograph from the photo clerk she tells him that he that he owes one dollar she that he owes her a dollar 75 and then a moment later when david is talking to the police and the doctor um she yells that he owes her money and then he says yes i owe her a dollar and 81 cents to be exact um and some people apparently have said that that's a mistake but uh, he's just being very exact because, uh, sales tax at the time in California was 3%. So a dollar 75 plus 3% sales tax would make it a make it $1 and 81 cents. So that's kind of funny. Um, another piece of trivia is that the, uh, plot line of this episode was parodied in the Jack Benny program, uh, which featured Rod Serling. Uh, the premise of that was, um, I think Jack Benny hires Rod Serling to write his life or something, but no one remembers him or no one recognizes him. I don't know, but it, I think, I think that whole sketch is on YouTube somewhere, but anyway, um, final pieces of trivia are that the photo of the boxer behind the bar is the same that's featured in the episodes, what you need. And apparently in a kind of stopwatch or kind of a stopwatch which I will get to eventually. And then finally, it, this episode is also referenced in the Seinfeld episode, The Van Buren Boys. Uh, and in that in that episode, Jerry makes a reference to feeling like a Twilight Zone character in saying uh, he feels like a character who's woken up and couldn't figure out his identity. And then Kramer says, which episode was that? <laughs> in Seinfeld, uh, Jerry remarks that, yeah, they were all like that. Uh, which I think is very funny. So anyway, um, that is my review for person or persons unknown. Um, overall it's fine. Maybe it'll, it may actually end up being a kind of forgettable episode, uh, to be honest, maybe not as forgettable as say like the whole truth or a couple of other episodes, but this is at best medium, medium grade, uh, twilight zone for me. So, um, yeah, I'm going to now conclude this episode with a brief non-spoiler review of an episode of science fiction theater. And to bring me into that segment, I'm going to play the theme song for science fiction theater. So here we go. Thank you. 
This episode of Science Fiction Theater is titled The Long Day. It is Season 1, Episode 34 of Science Fiction Theater, and originally aired on December 17th, 1955. And the plot summary, courtesy of IMDb, is a group of scientists experiment with a new missile that will produce vast amounts of light at night. The experiment fails and the scientists have to figure out how to shut the light off. This episode was directed by Paul Guilfoyle and uh, was written by George Fass and Gertrude Fass. And it stars George Brent, Steve Brody, Gene Byron, uh, Raymond Bailey, who appeared in three episodes of The Twilight Zone, by the way, including Escape Clause and Back There. Um, and then one other I didn't put a note. I, I didn't put in my notes because I hadn't seen that episode yet. And then rounding out the cast is DeForest Kelly of Star Trek fame. Um, so uh, this episode overall was pretty okay. It took a little bit to warm up to me. Um, so the first thing I noticed is that uh, when watching this, I'm watching it on the DVD that's now out of print, but I feel like the color of the DVD transfers have been just terrible in all of these episodes. And, but I feel like this is the first time that it looks like it was just transfer, transferred to black and white for this episode, for this DVD release, which if I remember correctly, I think that season two of science fiction theater was filmed in black and white to call, to save costs, I think, or I might be thinking of tales of tales from tales of tomorrow. Um, I'm like almost 100% sure it's science fiction theater, though. So anyway, the opening scene, the pre-show uh, demonstration has Truman Bradley talking about how humans are not nocturnal. And uh, he kind of gives this very brief history of light. Uh, he talks about how, you know, human beings wanted to look at night. So they used fire and then fire begat candles and then candles began electricity and lights and all that so i don't know um and then he kind of says like what if like what if scientists wanted to harness the power of the sun very um c montgomery burns of him basically and then we get our episode and it's overall it like i said it's pretty solid it's it's actually better than most not maybe not better than most it's not that great but um it's actually a surprisingly rich um, episode for science fiction theater, um, which I'll get to. So the premise kind of introduces us to, or the show introduces us to a group of scientists that are working on Operation Torch, which um, is a like sun simulation thing that there's a missile that uh, they will launch and then it will basically create light in the sky for a certain amount of time. And then we have that introduction and then the show switches over to another group of men, uh, at a nearby town who are looking over blueprints and talking about how, um, this, this comes so quickly, but they're talking about how, oh, this, this development that we all live in and everything is being infiltrated by this family that just moved in. And we just found out that the man had, he's an ex-con, so we need to get rid of them. Like we, they can't, they can't be in this, uh, development because then we'll lose money. We'll lose money and everyone will leave and everything. Um, so 
in this scene, all I kept thinking was, I don't really care about this. <laughs> like, it just seems like just a, a, a very... It's it's tough that the first two scenes are two completely different sets of exposition. And the second one is very much not that compelling. Until it's revealed that they... Like, basically, it's someone sold property to an ex-convict, and the person, the people who own the property or own the development want to get rid of him. So, that's bare minimum interesting. Um, but then they start conspiring uh, a means to scare the guy away. Um, and they talk about, oh, we'll go in cover of darkness. Uh, there's a bat nearby. It's not explicitly stated, but... It kind of it kind of has the makings of like maybe not a lynch mob, but like a mob that is going to intimidate this family into moving out. Um, and all I thought was like, yeah, these guys are not good people. <laughs> and then to further that, and this I found really interesting, the main guy who has this plan, he makes the other two swear an oath to him that they will not say a word to anyone, not even their wives, about what they're going to do tonight. And that is such an interesting thing because science fiction theater, up until this point, I mean, I think there have been like examples here and there, but I don't think the show has done much in terms of uh, telling a story about like the Cold War and the Red Scare and McCarthyism and all of this stuff. It is obviously not to the extent of, you know, Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone's social commentary and everything, but I was very surprised to see what I imagine is a very veiled, a very thinly veiled, um, you know, reference to, you know, the, to, to the Cold War and the Red Scare and everything. I just think that that's really interesting. So then we get... Now our third set of characters, uh, we have the couple who live in the house. The man is DeForest Kelly, uh, and he's talking, they're talking about how they're not wanted there. And then they have this back and forth where they're talking about how like, okay, well we own this property. We bought it. We're not going to leave. Like they don't have the authority to make us leave. So it's, it's setting the stage and everything. And then what happens? And I, after this, I won't spoil anything, but then what happens is, uh, we go back to the scientists, they launch the rocket. There's some really cool, um, what I assume has to be archival footage of some kind. Um, I don't know where it originated from, but of a rocket being launched and everything. And it looks really cool. Um, and it, like I said, it has to be archival footage because I don't, obviously there's no budget for that, that kind of set piece in this because like the scale of it is, is much bigger. And this show keeps reusing the same set without making it look too different and everything. So there's, I'm curious where that footage came from. Anyway, um, what happens is the missile launches and night does not come because there is a glitch in the artificial sun that the that the missile was carrying creates light throughout the land and everything and i found this the la the closing like the last like half of the episode or the last 10 minutes of the episode so interesting and so engaging and it was so interesting to me that 
I went from kind of being not really that into this episode to really kind of kind of digging it a lot. Um, the way that it plays out, it kind of becomes a little bit hokey and the writing is a little bit too direct and everything, but the growth of the characters, in particular the characters that were planning to do something heinous to a family uh, to get them to leave their area, um, the way that that character, at least the head character of that group, the way that he grows throughout the episode is really, really interesting. Um, and again, the writing is a little too direct, is very on the nose. There's another oath that's taken at the end of the episode. Um, and it's very kind of hokey and weird. But for the time, like this is before before what I would say is, in my limited knowledge, would say, you know, r- this is before Rod Serling changed the game with science fiction and like social commentary and using, using science fiction as a vessel for very, you know, rich and relevant storytelling. This is before that. And this, this has some good stuff in it. Like this has some good subtext and some good, um, uh, you know, social commentary and everything. And it's just really, really fascinating to me. Um, and it's just surprisingly layered for science fiction theater. Um, and it's surprisingly coincidental as well because the show's bread and butter. I mean, I'm on, this is my 34th episode of science fiction theater. Um, up until this point, I mean, the show's bread and butter has been taking a science fiction premise and sciencing, sciencing it out. Uh, and basically doing all the logical steps and demonstrating how these crazy storylines would be like looked at in terms of realism and everything in a realistic way. Here we have this very like coincidental and very science fiction storyline um, that is just living in the science fiction like coincidental space. Um, and I find that to be really interesting. So overall, I liked this episode quite a bit. Uh, like I said, the writing is a little too direct and on the nose and everything, but, uh, and, and also I, (laughs) the, the kind of explanation of, um, I don't know the explanation of the, (laughs) of the rationale of this missile launch to create an artificial sun or artificial sunlight at first, I was like, I don't understand it. Like, I don't understand why that would be a thing. And Truman Bradley in the intro even said, like, you know, this is real research that's been done. Uh, people have researched this before and everything. Um, but there is a scene that is where the men are talking about the different applications of the light. And honestly, I think it was kind of neat. Like, he, like, they talk about how, imagine if this works, then we could light up battlefields and everything for and protect our troops and everything. And, uh, this, this could be used for aiding rescue efforts and natural disasters and everything. And then, <laughs> and then like the third example, uh, is it'll alleviate the need for lamps. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, okay. Like, it's like, it's one of the, those things is not like the other two. <laughs> 
So, um, I don't know. I got kind of a kick out of that, but overall, I think that the long day was a surprisingly, a surprisingly layered episode of science fiction theater that, um, I think was really entertaining and, and done really well. And I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was, it would hold its own, uh, with a Serling script or anything, but it does feel like the kind of prototype for what would come from Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone, um, on a very small scale. So I have a ton of appreciation for this episode for that reason. Um, and uh, not to say that it influenced Rod Serling in any way, but I just, I just like the idea that, um, I made this, I made this comparison, uh, to, uh, with, with dark and lost and everything in my Patreon reviews, but, uh, it's like, it's, it's, it's like science fiction theater walked so that the twilight zone could run, um, that old kind of thing. So I don't know. Um, and this is just kind of a good example of, of where those two properties are a little bit closer than, uh, what they would normally be. Um, uh, in the content that they create and everything. I don't know. So anyway, um, I guess that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. So I just want to say thank you guys so much for listening. Um, by the way, if you want to join Patreon, once again, the hard sell for you guys there, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, uh, Patreon supporters got access to this episode a full week in advance. Uh, so this episode is coming out, what, uh, October, um, October 16th, 17th. I'm not sure. Let me look at my calendar. Oh, this is going to come out. This episode comes out on the main feed on, uh, October 20th, but Patreon supporters got access to it on October, probably 13th or 14th. Um, yeah, I'll throw it on there on the, I don't know, 13th or 14th. I don't know. But anyway, uh, a full week in advance. So, uh, if you are interested in early access to content, uh, special bonus reviews and exclusive reviews for Patreon, uh, a whole plethora of stuff. Go, if go check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and, uh, sign up, um, on one of the, one of the like tier levels. Um, I would hope that you guys would not be disappointed. Um, I throw a lot of content on there. So, um, if you like hearing my voice, uh, consider, uh, jumping behind the paywall. So, uh, next time on the show, I'm going to be reviewing episode 28 of the Twilight Zone's third season, The Little People. And I'm going to be rounding out with it, uh, rounding it out with Project 44 from Science Fiction Theater's first season. Um, until then, thank you guys once again for listening to the show and, uh, check out my other shows and I'll see you in the next episode. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy! Seasons two and three are eight episodes apiece. And one of the things that I'm going to be mentioning in this review, definitely throughout throughout the course of this entire review, I'm going to be mentioning, mentioning this and being a, kind of a brat about it. But 
it's just kind of, I don't know, sort of sad to me that it's that I only have 16 episodes of the show left. Um, because I want to live in this world for so much longer. And I know that the fact that it's only 16 more episodes, um, I know that they're going to pack so much into those episodes, obviously, but it's still kind of bittersweet as someone who is so accustomed to watching shows just be run completely into the ground (laughs) until they lack any type of artistic merit. Um, and then being forced to continue watching that until, (laughs) until the show is put out of its misery. So it's nice to know that there is a finite amount of story that is going to be told to us through dark, through three seasons, and that we're now one third of the way there, a little bit over one third since, uh, season one had 10 episodes while two and three had eight. But, um, I am pressing on and I am going, going, uh, going nuts with it. So here we go with season two, episode one, beginnings and endings. And for those of you at home who are keeping track, I don't know why anyone would keep track of this, of what microphone I'm using and everything I'm using. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.